The Water Values Podcast, Session 1. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. And here's your host, Dave McGimson. Hello, and welcome to the very first session of the Water Values Podcast. This is an endeavor I've been planning for a while now, and I'm thrilled that it's finally coming together. I don't know where we'll end up with this venture, but we'll have a lot of fun along the way, and we'll learn a thing or two about water. So thanks for joining me. My goal is to release one session per week of the Water Values Podcast, 52 weeks per year. Three sessions are being released concurrently with this, the first session, a second session with Jack Whitman, who's a hydrogeologist, and a third session with Jen Vervier, the Director of Sustainability and Strategic Development for New Belgium Brewing. Upcoming sessions include conversations with Mike McGuire, a California-based engineer, author, and multi-site blogger on water issues, John Ensminger, the new general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, and Jim Salzman, a professor at Duke University who has also authored a book on drinking water. Many more sessions of the Water Values Podcast will follow these, and I hope you join me as we progress through this journey about water. Before we get into the podcast, I need to make a few disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. So let's get on with our first episode of the Water Values Podcast, which is an interview with Matt Klein. Matt approaches water from a number of different perspectives. He's been an environmental regulator. He is an environmental lawyer. He was the executive director of the city of Indianapolis's Department of Waterworks for a period of time. And now he is the executive director of technical operations for the Indiana Office of Utility Consumer Counselor. And that is the agency that is charged with representing the public in utility proceedings before the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. All right, Matt, thanks very much for joining us on the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you here. Uh, you are our first guest, kind of um, your Bill Murray to my letterman, so to speak. So, Matt, if you could, could you tell us a little bit about your background uh, and how you got interested in water. Sure. Uh, first, Dave, thanks for, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, uh, my, uh, my background is uh, I grew up on the East Coast and came out to Indiana, went to college here, got my master's degree here, really wanted to become an environmental lawyer, and uh, really had a passion for toxic waste, of all things. And um, I, I worked at the uh, Indiana Department of of environmental management, went to law school at night, and uh, practiced law for a few years. Then I went back to uh, IDEM as an assistant commissioner under Governor Daniels, where I oversaw the enforcement of Indiana's environmental laws. And then after that, I went back to practicing law, and I thought, this is probably where I'm going to be. I'm just going to 
hang my hat here at the firm and practice environmental law for the rest of my life. And I got a phone call. And uh, many of the listeners probably know what kind of phone call that is. You get a phone call from someone that uh, you know and you often can't turn them down. And, and the phone call uh, was such that uh, wanted to know if I wanted to run the water company. And I said, well, what's that? And uh, long story short, I was uh, provided the opportunity to uh, uh, oversee Indianapolis Water, one of the uh, uh, certainly the largest drinking water utility in Indiana and one of the largest in the nation. And um, it, was, it was a tremendous uh, experience for about two and a half years, uh, turning around the utility and uh, then uh, working to uh, uh, move it over to Citizens Energy Group in a, in a transition for Mayor Ballard. Okay, got it. So that's that's quite a journey from toxic waste to drinking water. Um, it, it seems the way you've described it, you have filled a number of different roles uh, in the water space. Environmental regulators, where you started while you went through law school, then you became the environmental lawyer, and then you moved on to uh, Indianapolis Water as its executive director. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience as an environmental regulator, kind of when you were uh, going through law school, uh, what what were the big water issues that you dealt with as that environmental regulator? Well, there were a myriad of different issues. And, and I think the first lesson is that water issues um, are found throughout and addressed by a number of different federal and state environmental laws. For example, uh, I oversaw the underground storage tank and leaking underground storage tank um, uh, compliance programs. Those programs aren't simply just to regulate um, petroleum or hazardous substances in underground tanks. It's really to protect uh, underground sources of drinking water. And many of the folks that are listening probably are on groundwater systems. They uh, pull groundwater out, treat it, and send it to customers. Uh, there were other statutes, for example, uh, within uh, the Clean Water Act where we had to address combined sewer overflows to ensure that the discharges from uh, municipalities, uh, for example, were treated uh, and rectified so that we weren't sending untreated uh, wastewater downstream to the next drinking water plant intake. Uh, and then certainly you have the direct issues with the Safe Drinking Water Act where uh, sometimes the big issues were actually with the smaller utilities. Uh, I can recall uh, working to address some compliance issues with some small schools, some small private schools, where the ability for us to uh, connect with them and address the compliance issues were often uh, very difficult and challenging. Uh, so those are just in brief a number of the issues that uh, I was able to address in the water world through a variety of these different statutes that I oversaw. Okay. And in terms of those statutes, it sounds like a lot of the, the work you were doing was, was Clean Water Act work and uh, RICRA work. Did you do much Safe Drinking Water Act work when you were at IDEM? Yes. Um, uh, along with underground storage tanks, uh, RICRA, Hazardous Waste Law, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, um, uh, was, was also one of the programs we looked at. And, and one of the particular uh, issues that we had to deal with was monitoring and sampling and making sure that uh, 
sampling was performed timely, sampling was reported. Uh, there was also annual fees. The, the, uh, unfortunately, you often, as uh, uh, head of the enforcement program, have to remind people that many of these programs that the government runs are funded off of fees, and uh, some of these folks uh, were not timely in paying their administrative fees to help run the programs to fund the inspectors and permit writers to ensure that our drinking water is, is safe uh, and clean. Okay. Could you give us a feel for you know, the magnitude of the sampling, the, the amounts of the fees? Because these are really components. These costs are components of what we all pay for our water because the, whatever utility is serving us, they've got to pass those costs through somehow to the end user. And so I'm just curious, you know, what, what that regime looks like. of the sampling uh, program under the Safe Drinking Water Act can be found um, uh, in Indiana, for example, at uh, 327 IAC-8. And a lot of the uh, uh, individuals that operate the drinking water systems are well aware of the, the range of those sampling requirements. Um, they range from uh, very simple to very complex. Uh, and there's parameters for at what point those sampling monitoring reporting requirements apply. Obviously, there's a difference between um, the nature of the sampling monitoring requirements if you uh, use uh, surface water supplies like a river uh, or a reservoir as compared to um, a, a, a groundwater-based system where the sampling and monitoring requirements may be less. I think that's part of the calculus that a, a water leader needs to address when determining uh, future water needs, supplies, how you're going to treat that water, how you're going to get it to the customer, uh, what's the cost involved in, in securing your supply from groundwater sources or surface water sources. To the permit fee issue, um, I believe that the permit fees were fairly, um, very small. There were, they were not as exorbitant as some of the fees you might see in the Clean Air Act or under RICRA if I had a hazardous waste disposal facility. Uh, so the fees were very uh, straightforward. Uh, I, I'm not so sure that the fees um, uh, were that difficult for some of the uh, uh, regulated entities to pay. It was simply the character of the regulated universe where many of the facilities uh, that are regulated, such as schools, uh, perhaps a truck stop, uh, often had uh, less sophisticated environmental resources to help them understand and comply with the Safe Drinking Water Act requirements. And so that became a bit of an administrative challenge. So we talked about these federal statutes, and then you've also mentioned uh, an Indiana rule put out by the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, or IDEM. Uh, how, what is the relationship between the feds and the states? I think the relationship is one that is is – uh, good. I believe that there are often uh, challenges because of the different missions of EPA and IDEM. It's not uh, that different from any other state-federal uh, relationship, whether it be Oklahoma and EPA or California and EPA. I think every state has its particular personality. Uh, I think the drinking water relationship between EPA and, and uh, IDEM is, is very good. I think the characters uh, the personnel uh, are uh, have been fairly consistent over the years, and I think uh, they are 
necessarily on the same page. Federal laws, they provide kind of the backbone and the framework for how all the water regulations are going to work. And then the states are the ones that actually implement the laws. In some cases, EPA will implement if there's no state agency or or how does that how does that functionality work between the federal laws and the state laws? Well, under most um, uh, federal laws, states are able to get approval from the federal government, in this case EPA, to uh, implement a particular program. Uh, it could be the Clean Air Act, it could be RCRA, it could be uh, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and the state agency. Uh, that wants to run the program will put together a package, uh, how they're going to run the program, the resources, et cetera, and they will submit that to the federal uh, EPA, and EPA will review it and approve their program. Um, uh, practitioners should be aware, um, including, uh, I should say, utility executives, should be aware that sometimes states and EPA often don't simply agree to have the whole program delegated. There could be certain components of a particular federal law that the state may not want to implement. So you need to be uh, concerned when it comes to compliance whether the particular regulation or statutory provision will be addressed by the um, uh, state agency or whether it will be addressed by the federal agency. So um, you have to be aware of that. In this case, IDEM has, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, put together its package, had its program approved, and has implemented it here within Indiana for, for many years. Uh, the regulations that apply are found at 327 IC8, if I recall correctly. Um, and one can, if you're a drinking water facility, can look at 327 IC8, determine the compliance obligations that you have. I think one of the questions you asked, Dave, was um, suggesting that states can go above and beyond uh, what the minimum federal requirements may be under, for example, the Safe Drinking Water Act. And I think one example that comes to mind, perhaps, is um, uh, laws are unaccounted for water. I believe Indiana has provision at 327 IC8 that says that if your uh, 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 unaccounted for water is over 25%, then that's a concern. And Ida may uh, instruct you to take certain measures to reduce that, that uh, unaccounted for water, which we now call non-revenue water. I know that non-revenue water uh, is an issue near and dear to your heart. I, I obviously um, think it's very important as well. Because non-revenue water is really a, a metric for utilities, let's get into your time um, as the executive director of Indianapolis Water. But before we, we actually make the transition, can you, we've talked a lot about the existing laws on the books. Can you talk a little bit about where you see – the regulation of water moving from from the federal level are 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 the restrictions going to be getting tighter, looser, a combination of the two in different areas? How do you see that moving? I think it's I, I think it's going to be uh, slow and steady. That would be my my current assessment. There are a number of uh, water related um, uh, statutory or regulatory efforts underway. Uh, I think some uh, may or may not be as, as uh, obvious to some water leaders as others. Certainly, um, uh, you have the direct Safe Drinking Water Act regulations, and whether or not um, there will be additional proposed uh, contaminants of concern for regulation in the future. 
I think under the Clean Water Act, which some of the water leaders will look at as indirectly applicable to them, for example, if they have a discharge to a pretreatment uh, or, or to a, a wastewater treatment plant or directly to a, a body of water, um, they may uh, continue to be interested in how um, uh, the, the definition of a wetland or waters of the state jurisdiction of uh, waters uh, will be defined. I think that ultimately uh, we may be less concerned about what the de what it is defined as as just simply having the certainty or predictability of what it is so that leaders can address thoughtfully uh, their planning for future water facilities and other other features going forward. Um, no one wants to uh, uh, develop a new water plant uh, and uh, have issues related to what's a wetland or what is a jurisdictional water um, uh, after the fact and not have that clear beforehand. You don't want to receive a notice of violation from uh, a governmental entity after the fact. You'd like to have that certainty and predictability up front. So um, the other final aspect is from a different angle. Uh, some water leaders have chosen to uh, implement uh, smart metering programs, um, advanced metering infrastructure, taking that next uh, step. One of the things that they need to look out for are forthcoming uh, critical infrastructure protection standards or uh, cybersecurity standards that are out there. Although those don't specifically address contaminants in the drinking water uh, supply, they come at drinking water facilities from a particular angle. Uh, and I would encourage uh, a lot of the water folks to pay attention to that going forward. Great. Well, now I think let's move over uh, and, and start talking about your time as the executive director of Indianapolis Water. And could you talk a little bit just about the structure of how that utility was set up? Um, because I, I think that was a public-private partnership. Just how, you know, what was, what was the mechanism under which Indianapolis Water operated? century, the uh, Indianapolis Water Company was an investor-owned utility. Uh, in, the, in the late 90s, the Indianapolis Water Company uh, sold to what is known as NISource. NISource uh, is traditionally known as, as an electric and gas utility uh, headquartered out of Merrillville, Indiana. Uh, NISource had Indianapolis Water uh, for approximately two or three years, and they uh, divested of that in uh, late 99, 2000, and uh, the city of Indianapolis at the time uh, had an interest in running its own water utility, and so the mayor at the time uh, set forth to acquire the utility, uh, did so successfully, and then arranged, in a, as you mentioned, a public-private partnership, uh, arranged for a contract operator uh, for the city on the drinking water system, and that relationship uh, existed for uh, about a decade uh, until the assets were transferred to Citizens Energy Group in August of uh, 2011. How big was Indianapolis Water when you were at the helm? And you know, what kind of goes into the daily life of a utility? What, what, can you talk about, you know, I think there are the listeners would appreciate, know, appreciate knowing kind of what goes in kind of a, a daily life so that 
they can get water to their homes? That's a great question. I think the, uh, I'll sound like an economist when I answer this, but it depends. Um, I think there's a different answer at my level versus uh, middle management versus the, the man or woman on the street. Uh, I would say that Indianapolis water uh, was is one of the largest or was one of the largest water utilities in America. We were probably at a um, uh, production of about 140, 150 million gallons a day. We had a peak day uh, demand of about, uh, at least when I was there, about 228 million gallons. Um, the, the customer base is about 305, 310,000 people, serving mostly Indianapolis, Marion County, and some of the uh, counties surrounding Indianapolis. Um, we had uh, we were served by several reservoirs: Morse Reservoir, Geist Reservoir, and Eagle Creek Reservoir. We have uh, a number of uh, uh, well fields. We're about 80% surface water, 20% groundwater. Uh, the uh, we had about four surface water plants and a number of groundwater plants, and about 4,400 miles of mains. The at my level, I think day to day, uh, my role was to look out uh, on on the horizon, look out for issues, uh, concerns uh, in the future, mostly one to five years out, if not longer, doing some of the strategic planning, uh, interacting with government officials, uh, considering uh, how to address the current rate case that we were uh, we were dealing with at the time, and certainly supporting the mayor's office in the work on the on the uh, transaction with Citizens Energy Group. I think for the middle managers, it was looking at the operation of the plant, making sure that we were in compliance with all environmental laws and regulations, uh, certainly providing a sufficient amount of water to our customers, uh, addressing customer service issues in the call center. Uh, from a financial perspective, uh, addressing uh, whether uh, the funds that were owed to us were coming in uh, on time. Uh, whether overdue amounts were being uh, sought, and then uh, for the for the for the person in the street, field workers, um, it's a different it's a different answer. And I think the folks in the street, uh, looking at uh, testing and evaluating our hydrants to make sure they're operational, I think evaluating uh, whether valves in the street are operational, uh, meter readers, ensuring that the meters can be read. Um, that any uh, meter pits or defective meters are addressed and repaired or replaced. Um, certainly the field crews that uh, install mains, install hydrants, or actually uh, repair broken mains, um, uh, I think their work is very valuable and often underappreciated. And uh, they're very, very pride, uh, have a lot of pride in the work that they do. Uh, they know uh, how much water means to families and businesses across Indianapolis. Um, and so I was just very – the times that I went out in the field to watch them repair a broken main or uh, fix a hydrant, uh, very impressed with the work that they did. So those are kind of the three different levels of answers that I think are, are relevant. You, you mentioned the rate case. Talk, could you talk a little bit about kind of some of the big cost drivers in the rate case? You know, what – and what, how much money were, was Indianapolis Water asking for in that rate case? Just talk about in terms of – I'm not asking you to do a deep dive into the rate case, but in terms of just the, the basic elements of what, what kind of made up the, the rate case. Well, the rate case was initiated uh, 
topless water being caught up in the financial market meltdown of 2008. We had some variable rate debt, and um, those amounts were called in, and we looked in our checking account, uh, and we saw that we didn't have money to pay that bill. And so when I came on board, I was briefed on these issues, and I think I recall it's about 30 days before I arrived as executive director that um, an emergency rate case was filed uh, to seek uh, some funds to allow us to continue to operate and, and not be in the red. I think at that point we were asking for about 17.7%, uh, and that particular uh, emergency rate case went forward. I think we eventually got 10.8%, and then we filed our general rate case later in, in the fall asking for another um, uh, 30% on top of that. So um, the, the challenges were financial that had an impact on us uh, operationally. Uh, we had to pay our contract operator. We had to make our debt service payments, which left very few funds for capital improvements. And that was a great challenge as we were in, in a situation where we needed to uh, repair and replace many different assets uh, that were uh, very significant in the cost. And so for approximately two and a half years, we were uh, treading water, uh, doing a lot of maintenance. It sounds like there was a pinch in terms of the money available to put towards infrastructure. And we'd mentioned non-revenue water earlier, and I think there's a, a significant tie between non-revenue water and the infrastructure. And could you talk a little bit about any initiatives you had to try and, and get the utility in a better financial, healthier state, as well as you know, moving the utility towards uh, infrastructure improvement? And we had to do it managerially, financially, and technically. And it was a multi-pronged strategy. Uh, on the financial side, um, we, we took uh, the debt that we had and we refunded it and went from variable rate to fixed rate. And we rearranged um, the, the repayment schedule, saving rate payers um, uh, millions of dollars. The other aspect that we looked at financially was trying to look and co collect a lot of the um, overdue bills that were out there. Um, we had a lot of money out there that was, was not being collected, and so we, we set out to call a lot of our customers to ask uh, where they were on their payments. So we were fairly successful in collecting uh, that, that revenue. Um, the, from, the, from the technical standpoint, we took a very close look at our capital plan. Uh, we looked at projects that had been proposed, and we eliminated certain projects. We combined certain projects, and we also instituted a, a public uh, a bidding project, uh, public bidding uh, practice to ensure that we were getting the best price from the most uh, responsive and responsible uh, bidder. On the design side, I should point out that we we used a a um, situation a, a method where we went out to not just hand. Uh, contracts to particular uh, qualified vendors, but we actually scrutinized which ones were most appropriate for which design projects, and we used a particular uh, method developed by ACDC in, in doing that. Um, the, uh, on the, on the, I think the 
The other technical issue I think that was very important is we started looking at audits. Uh, we started looking at environmental audits to make sure that we were in compliance. <coughs> Look at energy audits to determine if there were if there were opportunities to save money on our energy bills. I think, as you know, uh, Dave, uh, a, a municipality's energy bill is driven uh, dramatically by uh, the power consumed by water and wastewater plants within a particular municipality's jurisdiction. Uh, we also looked at maintenance and operational audits. We, we looked at whether maintenance was being performed uh, correctly, and what we could do to uh, uh, have the assets last even longer uh, based on appropriate or enhanced maintenance. Um, so a number of different things uh, that we looked at. We even tried to pursue uh, a water audit to address our non-revenue water. And there's a number of different ways that you can address uh, non-revenue water. Uh, a few, uh, one example in particular is um, uh, many of the listeners probably have hydrants that are accessed by uh, different companies or individuals like the pool vendor. So we set out to review our contracts to provide a system of accountability. And then we had a, uh, an effort underway to identify a more reasonable number, uh, a smaller number of hydrants which these uh, consultants, uh, pool vendors, other contractors could access in our system. When you have 36,000 hydrants uh, and you don't know which hydrants are being accessed at what point in time, it may create uh, maintenance or capital challenges for uh, your system. And so we set forth to identify a smaller number, less than 1,000 hydrants that these folks could access. We would know which ones they were and we can identify those particular hydrants for enhanced maintenance to ensure that they were truly functional uh, when they were, would be needed by the fire department in case of an emergency. Um, a lot of different uh, opportunities. I'm sure uh, we, we could talk probably for hours about all the different <laughs> efforts. But I think um, we could. You have, you have, when you have non-revenue water, simply it is a source of supply that you're throwing out. You're paying for it. The customers are paying for it and you're throwing it out, and how can we reduce that waste to use that uh, to get it to the customers? So uh, most most folks uh, who are not water, uh, water folks would be surprised to hear that 10, 15, 20, 30 percent of the water that is made never arrives at the customer's location. It's lost, and there's a cost to that, and uh, how can we reduce that to be, become better stewards uh, of the uh, of the water. You had coined a term, or maybe not coined it, but you used a term over and over again, uh, kind of get off the credit cards. What was that all about? Well, that goes back to the amount of debt that the utility had. Uh, I, I recall that uh, we had about $917 million of debt when I arrived. Uh, and that's, that's akin to a person having a $100,000 home with a $200,000 mortgage. And uh, we needed to stop using our credit cards, if you will, or bond funding every project. We needed to balance that and move forward uh, a little more aggressively on revenue funding uh, more of our projects. Okay, okay, real, real quick. When you say bond funding, that, that is issuing debt. So you're, you're going to kick the can down the road and pay for it in the future, whereas revenue funding, that is – paying for the infrastructure out of present rates. Is that 
Am I getting that right? Okay, good. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. If I go in and I want to buy some lumber at the hardware store, I can I can write a check out of my checking account and pay for it as I go, or I can use my credit card and I can pay for it. Well, whenever I can pay for it, I can. And uh, normally, utilities, whether it be electric, gas, or water, tend to uh, bond fund uh, projects of of significance that are going to last for 10, 20, 30 years, and that's the that's the uh, uh, the time frame in which they pay off their debt. So uh, you, it's just like borrowing money when you when you buy a car, you buy a house. Um, there's interest, and so uh, we have racked up quite a bit of uh, what I would call credit card debt by bond funding many projects, and we needed to move move that need a little bit more toward the revenue funding of projects, or PAYGO, as some people may call it. So we had traditionally bond-funded about 62% of our projects, and I proposed to move that incrementally back to, I think, uh, in this first-rate case, we had about 55%, uh, say, ratepayers, a couple million dollars. So, um, Right, but... Yeah, and the re- the reason bond funding is so attractive, at least, is because you you don't have to. It doesn't impact your rates as greatly as revenue funding. If you're revenue funding, your the rates are going to go up a little more than they would typically if you're bond funding. But the benefit is you're not going to be paying that interest in the future. So you you pay it now, you incur the pain, and probably realize uh, from from my perspective, you realize the true value of water faster when you're revenue funding your um, your capital needs, at least not the, the capital needs that aren't aren't gonna have that, you know, fifty year life. Um, but right. you're you're so I think that's that's an important an important concept. Yeah, I, I think that we in the past were not as judicious about what we bond funded versus what we revenue funded. Uh, I think we were bond funding projects that should have been revenue funded. Um, certainly the, the uh, a new water plant that could be tens of millions of dollars probably want to bond fund that because it's going to last for at least 30 years. But there are other projects such as a, perhaps a hydrant or a meter um, or other, other assets that may not last for 30 years that you may want to revenue fund. And I think we were not evaluating that as closely as we should have in the past. So... Right. Uh, and your point is well taken about the value of water. Philosophically, uh, many water leaders believe that that uh, ratepayers um, don't fully appreciate the value of water and consider it to be free, cheap, plentiful. And uh, some people opine that that uh, those days are over, um, and that water rates will continue to uh, increase dramatically. You know, we've talked about non-revenue water. We could talk about non-revenue water for a long time, I think. But you also brought up meter reading when you were talking about the kind of the typical day or what goes into delivering water. And Indianapolis Water was on a bi-monthly read cycle. Can you talk a little bit about meter reading and another subject that I think you are very interested in, and that is advanced metering infrastructure? that I learned was that meters are your cash registers. Uh, reading the meters, reading them accurately um, is the way that the utility uh, uh, collects its revenue uh, from the customer. Um, and there are some utilities still in America that 
do not have meters. They simply charge a flat rate. Uh, utilities that have meters have to decide how often they want to read the meters. Some read them monthly. Some, like in our situation, were read bi-monthly, <coughs> meaning, excuse me, meaning that uh, every other month we were estimating. And some utilities have pivoted from what I would consider to be an analog uh, world to the digital world and employing smart meters uh, connected to advanced metering infrastructure where uh, the meters can be read um, almost real time. And you can gather all these data about consumption patterns of your customers to help you with capital and financial decision making. Um, we, we had a lot of difficulty with uh, meter reading. There was a lot of angst from many of our customers over reading uh, the meters bi-monthly. And I would point out that uh, I think Indianapolis Water uh, many years ago had approached uh, the regulators uh, at the time about wanting to spend more money to hire a few more people to read meters monthly, and that was rejected many years ago. Uh, so that's true. That was in the that, that was in the mid nineties. Yeah, yeah, and and I think unfortunately um, we continued with bi monthly meter reading, and it became a, an issue. Uh, at a, during my tenure, or I think it was an issue, and I had to uh, consider how to address it. I think we looked at a couple of different options, and one of the issues I began to explore was uh, advanced metering infrastructure, smart meters, um, and how this could uh, resolve a lot of the challenges of uh, the meter reading controversies, among other things. When you talk about smart grid, it's a very broad term and includes smart meters. It was a lot of different things. But uh, you could implement a smart, uh, smart grid program, and you could do a couple things. Save money on meter readers. You could save money on sending out field crews to check on uh, alleged broken meters. Um, you could eliminate the need for uh, sending a field worker out to uh, uh, shut off or turn on the uh, water meter. All that can be done remotely from a desk. And there's some cost savings there and some operational savings and um, a lot of other other potential benefits from implementing a smart grid program at a water utility. But um, uh, it was something that was uh, beginning to be evaluated during my tenure. And uh, I think it's going to continue to be on the radar uh, of, of many water utilities uh, here in Indiana going forward. Right. Well, we could talk for hours about this stuff, but we're we're kind of coming to a close here and uh we have talked about you know your tenure essentially through the transition of Indianapolis Water to Citizens Energy Group in 2011 what have you been doing since then well currently um i'm the executive director of technical operations uh for the Indiana office of utility consumer counselor uh we are the uh consumer advocate for residential, commercial, industrial rate payers in Indiana. And it's more than just water and wastewater. It includes gas, includes electric, uh, resource planning, communications. Uh, we uh, advocate on behalf of rate payers involved in about $12 billion of rate base. And so when a utility comes in and files a petition with the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission seeking some form of relief, say a uh, rate increase, we will review that petition and we will file our testimony. We are the statutory intervener in these rate cases and other matters. And we will have uh, hearings in front of the commission and receive orders 
about, um, again, among other things, uh, the nature of a rate increase or a CPCN or an environmental tracker or an integrated resource plan, uh, et cetera. So I oversee all the division uh, directors and their staff over those different areas at this agency. Right. Well, I'd, I'd love to spend more time exploring that with you, but as I indicated, we're, we're coming to a close here. And so, Matt, if there's if, if listeners want to reach out to you or find out more about you, how can they do that? Well, they can follow me on Twitter, uh, the Mariner 1220. Uh, they can certainly email me um, uh, or, or give me a call. My, my uh, office number is uh, 317-233-3231. And uh, give me a call, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that they might have. Um, and it's just been uh, great talking with you. I, I feel bad we're out of time. There's so much to talk about, so many things happening in the water world. And I appreciate your leadership on this, uh, Dave, and uh, look forward to further discussions. Great. Well, Matt, I really appreciate your time coming on. It's been fantastic. I know we could do this. We could talk for a long time about all the different water issues, like you said. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that's really why uh, I'm doing this podcast is because, number one, I want to learn some things about water that I don't know. And number two, I think there's an important public education element, and I think you referenced that earlier, that many people just, you know, kind of, they, they turn on the tap, water's free, it's cheap, uh, and there's a lot more that goes into it than, than people realize. And that's, that's really what, what I'm after here is trying to get that public education about water going. So thank you again. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks again, Matt, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Dave. Well, that was my interview with Matt Klein. I thought he did a great job laying out from a high level some of the environmental statutes that affect water. He also shared with us just a fraction of the issues he dealt with while the executive director of the Indianapolis Department of Waterworks. We could have talked all day about his experiences there. Finally, he talked briefly about his work at the Indiana Office of Utility Consumer Counselor as the executive director of technical operations. And again, the Indiana Office of Utility Consumer Counselor is the state agency that represents ratepayers in utility commission proceedings in Indiana. Well, what interested you about that interview? Please let me know by posting a comment on the show notes, which will be posted at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash P-O-D, and then number one. I also appreciate any feedback you can give, good, bad, or indifferent. You can email me at david at thewatervalues.com, or you can tweet at me at DTM1993. That's at DTM1993. Please contact me with suggestions for potential interviewees water issues you'd like to hear more about, or even just to let me know what you liked or didn't like about the podcast. I'm always trying to improve, and I want to deliver the information about water that you want to hear. I appreciate your support by spreading the word about the Water Values Podcast and by providing an honest review on iTunes and Stitcher. And I promise you this, I'll never turn down a five-star review. In closing, remember the core message of the Water Values Podcast. Water is our most valuable resource, so join me in going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.